Christine Nathan. It is Crosstown Conversations. I have with me right now Calvin Alexander, who is an old friend. Oh my goodness, I think we've known each other for almost 50 years. Ever since we've lived on Esplanade and we used to run into you at the um, flea market. That's down right. At the other end of Esplanade, right? Absolutely. And um, capture um, goodies in one way or another. But um, since then, we've interacted in many other contexts, including on the Historic Districts Landmark Commission. Um, and also um, in, in the Holy Cross uh, neighborhood of the Lower Ninth Ward. And, and that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today, because, of course, um, here we are just a couple days from uh, the anniversary of Katrina. And I called Calvin because he lives there on what is now called, is it called um, Fats Domino Avenue? Fats Domino Street. Avenue, yes. All right. So it was Coffin. It's now that's Domino. And I think that um, it, it, it's kind of a very mixed story as to how the Ninth Ward, like many parts of the city, has been coming back and not coming back since Katrina. And since Calvin is literally a resident there and active, he is the current chair of the um, Holy Cross Neighborhood Association. And so he has experienced both uh, um, very much personally as a citizen who lives there, but also being engaged in, in work there. We're gonna start off the conversation with Calvin um, and hear about some of the hope, signs of hope you might say, and positive things that are happening as well. But why don't you pick up uh, from there and, and share with me some of the things that you were telling me about um, people who have come back, uh, people who stayed and, and, and how things are going. Sure. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, is, uh, that is quite a hodgepodge of uh, events. Um, but I think that because uh, the riverside of, Holy, of uh, St. Claude Avenue, which is uh, basically entails all of the Holy Cross neighborhood, uh, is higher ground, and that's because it's near the river. And of course, you know, the river dumped dumped silt for, for centuries and built up that part of this, this uh, area adjacent to the river. As you move north toward Lake Pontchartrain, uh, the top, topography is lower and lower and lower. In other words, the, the, the land up, land's level is lower and lower. In fact, as I understand it, from the levee at the Mississippi River to Florida Avenue, which is approximately a mile, the difference in height um, of, from sea level is approximately 10 to 12 feet. The elevation drops off. The actual off. elevation of the, of the properties, yes. Drops off 10 to 15 you, feet. That's a you, lot. That is a lot. In fact, yeah. I can recall at times when we had heavy rains and any any wind at all, you could literally see the rain run down the avenue toward toward Florida Avenue. You could literally see the water running that way because of the the uh, slope and the elevation. Fortunately, um, a lot of levee work was done and repairs were done to the damaged levees and the elevation change for flood insurance, etc. Uh, but the bottom line is because of the low-lying area between, say, Galvez and Florida <laughs> Avenue, um, 
a lot of houses were completely swept off their foundations. You can still see uh, concrete slabs and, and mm. piers and so on in in the area north of Claiborne uh, and particularly and north concrete of, stoops. Yes, yeah, porches, yeah. stoops, um, driveways, etc. Uh, and and over the last say three years, that there has been a lot of drainage, um, uh, street work, so on to build new streets, new subsurface drainage, and so on sewer lines to be able to redevelop those lots because I mean, there are literally hundreds of lots north of Claiborne that need to be redeveloped. Uh, I understand that uh, NORA, the New Orleans Redevelopment Authority has sold quite a few of those lots to a number of developers, including Habitat for Humanity. Uh, and a few houses have started to show up over the last year, year and a half. Um, and those of us who live here have been a little bit upset with some of the redevelopment because even with the size of many of the lots being large enough for driveways, the houses have been built with sometimes just a short pad right in front of the, the house to get a car off the street. But most of them, there's no driveway at all, which that, that calls for a lot of on-street parking. And that really doesn't make any sense to us either. Um, I'm gonna move back now to the Holy Cross or Riverside of St. Claude cool. Avenue, which very few houses were completely destroyed in the Holy Cross neighborhood. Some were uh, flooded fairly, fairly badly. I think they had eight, nine feet of water in some of them. Uh, but by and large, uh, Holy Cross has redeveloped to a point where we have a lot of new neighbors. A lot of people have come in and bought properties where either the original uh, owners decided to downside, decided not to return at all and just sold their property. Uh, but we have a lot of redevelopment in the Holy Cross side. Um, there's a couple of properties that have actually sold three different times over the last uh, 10, 12 years. Um, so the property values here have really skyrocketed. Um, I own a rental property in the 600 block of Flood Street and a developer bought uh, what had been a, a small double, converted it to a single and a couple from the Chicago area bought it. Um, I think he renovated it. Uh, he, I think he purchased it for under $60,000. Uh, renovated it, and I think it sold for somewhere around 175, 180. Wow, uh, that's a pretty pretty big leap. Oh yeah, that's oh it, it's it's gotten it's gotten much much uh, more more for, further along than that. There there's a couple in the neighborhood now. There's one right at the corner I was telling you about of uh, um, Royal Street uh, and Fast Domino that just got renovated, started off as a double. It is now a three unit building, a little over 2000 square feet. That's now on the market at uh, four, I think 459. There's another that had sold twice since uh, Katrina. Uh, it's about 4,000 square feet. And it's currently on the market at uh, six, 650, I believe. So so um, Calvin, it's, it's such a, it's such a um, 
conflicting uh, <laughs> themes. You know, on the one hand, you have an area that is, as you, as you said, stoops and driveways with no houses. There's still just open fields right. on, the, uh, on the lakeside. And then, um, and, and now you're saying on your side, you're getting, you know, skyrocketing housing prices. Um, I assume that one of the reasons why things have been so slow on the lakeside is again, you're saying uh, the need for infrastructure to be built in order to Absolutely. make it feasible for people to come in. There. And that's been slow, although yes. it's happening, right? It is so, happening. Uh, so how, if, if you were uh, in charge of this whole thing um, in some way, what do you feel like you would have done differently so that there was a, a more, a more I, I don't know what to say, balanced, rational, equitable. I'm not sure what the right adjective <laughs> is. Yeah, but you know, so that, you know, so that the redevelopment just kind of happened in some sort of more systematic way that would advance people being able to come back. Because I'm going to assume that some of those folks who haven't come back, they've got jobs, they've got homes, they've got kids in school and things have worked out and so they and 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 maybe the cost of rebuilding was too high uh, for them and so that's one reason why they're gone other other people haven't come back because of of you know how slow everything has been so what would you have done differently what what you know uh, i'm sure you've thought a, a lot about this so uh, what's your sense of what could have been done differently or what do we do now or let's answer both those questions. Well, I tell you, um, the lower ninth ward, and this is uh, supposedly fact, was the most devastated area of the city. Uh, there was a place where a a barge purportedly floated over the top of the industrial canal wall. Uh, apparently knocked down a portion of that wall and flooded much of the north side of the lower ninth ward. Um, I mean, literally, you can see where all the telephone poles were washed away, the fences were washed away. And I mean, you could see the direction that the water pushed through as it came out of the industrial canal, um, washing houses blocks from where they were originally located and so on. And really, you know, it was such devastation that, quite frankly, I think our city officials were aghast at exactly what to do. And because of the amount of infrastructure that was damaged and destroyed, um, they had to wait for money to be appropriated from Congress uh, in order to have any sort of reasonable plan on how to redevelop the area. So uh, part, that, of it, part of it was just literally the bureaucratic process of getting the funding for the feds as well. That's that's exactly. always an issue exactly. too. You know. Sure. So uh, so again, I'll, I'll, let me go back to your questions because I don't have a tremendous amount of time, unfortunately, in this particular right. show. I'm going to do a continuous series of of interviews with folks, and um, because this is this is. Uh, as you, as they say, this is a developing news story. <laughs> yes, it's it is. It's not over until it's over. But um, so, what would you have? What could you have done differently? Or, or, or again, if that, if there's just no way to answer that other than you know, um, to have put 
the pieces together in some kind of a much more systematic plan. What what now? What 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 maybe you know, what is your neighborhood association trying to do now? What do you see coming that can make a difference in in helping that? It's a lot of land. I mean, if, if it was out in the middle of nowhere, you could just say bye-bye, but it's in the middle of our city. And exactly. So we know it has to be redeveloped one way or another. I mean, Correct. should we have farmland there? Should we have gardens there? Should we have raised homes there? I mean, what uh, and 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 who is is Nora the best agency to do it, or or you know what what's the best way forward? Uh, I, I tell you, based on what what our experience has been so far, uh, I'm not even certain if a a private entity would have done much better because of the devastation. Uh, we are now hoping, as a matter of fact, the entire Ninth Ward is coming together on in about two weeks on September 10th to do a major cleanup, particularly along the um, commercial corridors of uh, North Claiborne and St. Claude Avenue. Uh, we had that has been one of the major reasons why we don't have uh, any viable businesses along the St. Claude Corridor or North Claiborne. CVS had built a drugstore about five years ago. Uh, it didn't last. That's sitting there as a building for lease. Um, under two uh, council persons back, a family dollar was built right at the corner of what was Caffin and St. Claude. That store closed. It's sitting there for lease. We did have a, uh, at the other side of the street on the south side, south west side of um, Bass Domino Avenue in St. Claude was an existing um, Walgreens at the time of the, the Katrina hit. That was, was sold off at least to a church that lasted for about five years. Uh, but then the church congregation dwindled to a point where they gave up the building and I understand a senior center is supposed to be uh, one of the centers that services uh, seniors, Medicare patients. Um, it, a senior center is supposed to be coming to that location now. But right now, uh, there are very few businesses uh, located along the St. Claude corridor, as well as, quite frankly, the, the North. And, and, and you're saying, again, I think you're, I'm hearing infrastructure is delayed infrastructure yes also because the the population is still low enough that that most of these national concerns do not feel there's Don't enough the living in the area to support those businesses and i think that has been borne out by the closing of the cvs and the um family dollar so we're at a point now where we are trying to get more families to build buy and so on in fact one of my uh, today is the anniversary of uh, my youngest daughter, and she wants to remain in Holy Cross. Um, she and her husband are trying to build up their finances such that they can afford one of these houses, because right now, probably, they may be able to purchase a house reasonably and then go through the cost of renovating it, or um, to buy one that's already been renovated, uh, the, the base price on that is usually about 250 to 275 uh, to purchase. Uh, and it's that's that's kind of tough for, for 
fairly recently married folk unless they have a, a nice uh, nest egg somewhere. Um, it is, it, it's really, a, it's, it's kind of a tizzy, unfortunately. Uh, you mentioned people who, who relocated. Some found great schools for their children, say in the Atlanta area. Um, uh, in Houston. Several other, yeah. Pardon? Houston, Dallas. Houston, yes. Even Baton Rouge. Yeah, yeah even Baton Rouge. Um, and so they found good jobs. They found good schools for their kids. And they simply decided not to relocate here. And many just went ahead and sold their properties. Do you um, think some of them would actually come back if things um, started to come together? I think it's a possibility. Uh, I actually, I'm on the board of, of I'm on a board of uh, one of our redevelopment uh, nonprofits, uh, Lower9.org, that has been helping uh, legacy families who own property to renovate or rebuild their properties here in the Lower Ninth Ward. Um, and we are still in contact with and reaching out to folk who, who lived here or owned property here prior to Katrina. And some are still committing that they want to come back. Uh, I, I was just in contact with a lady who's working in New York right now and owns a house right on uh, Delaware Street across from the Jackson Barracks. And she's been uh, in the process of trying to get her property renovated so that she can relocate here. And there are still a number of families who are committed to coming back. In fact, must have been about three years ago, we were in contact with the family uh, on the, in the area between Claiborne and St. Claude, who had been in the St. Louis area for about 10 years. And they are back in their home finally. So it is not hopeless, but it is a long ongoing battle. So I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to stop there for a minute. Um, again, uh, saying this is a developing story. <laughs> yes, and, uh, I, I don't think we, um, we, we've nailed any answers, but I, I like what I'm hearing about the lower um, uh, ninth uh, uh, organization trying to bring people back. I want to follow up with you on that. And um, uh, you sent me something on your cleanup day on September 10th, and let me uh, get the word out through the show and through our newsletter on that. Calvin, I'm going to look forward to your recommendations on other folks that we should talk to. I'm going to try over the coming weeks to um, uh, keep going back to uh, some folks and 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 uh, take the temperature and 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 see if we can kind of just uh, stir up a little bit of um, I don't know energy and uh, excitement about uh, the return. It's such a fundamentally beautiful area yeah, the river yeah. you're you're running along this beautiful uh riverfront the levee there to me is one of the most beautiful places in the whole city of new orleans that's why you know i i became involved with it and um and the area on the lake i think that um uh, i hope to talk to rashida ferdinand soon about what they're doing with the development of the wetlands program there and um there's hope and i'm hearing yes, that from is. you and um, I'm going to help along with you. So keep me keep me informed. Will do, Gene. Thanks so much. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. We're going to go on uh, and and hear from um, Judy Cooper, who is uh, a, an author of an amazing book about our social aid and pleasure clubs, which are definitely still here and going forward. 
I think you'll uh, get again some feeling of hope from what's happening uh, uh, with those organizations. So that's next. I have Judy Cooper with us today, who has done a remarkable job of really delving into the history and the sort of ecosystem of the um, social aid and pleasure clubs, which is a very big job because for one, apparently there's something like, maybe the number has changed, but something like about 50 uh, social aid and pleasure clubs. So um, I opened this huge tome of a book that you've written called Dancing in the Streets. You know, how, how do you account for that? How do you account for the tenacity of the custom, even though it has morphed from the original purely African um, traditions to what we have come to associate with the social aid and pleasure club uh, parading? Um, I don't think it was a straight line, um, you know, but the, but the, the paraders of today, the social aid and pleasure club members of today do are very consciously uh, attribute, you know, the beginning of their tradition to the, the tradition in Congo Square. They see that as their, you know, prototype, as it were, uh, part of their ancestral heritage. Mm -hmm. um, they tradition, the current tradition did begin in the 19th century with the uh, benevolent associations uh, that were uh, very prevalent in New Orleans uh, amongst all levels of society. But amongst the African-Americans, they served as uh, aid societies, benevolent societies that would help their members with uh, medical bills and especially burial insurance because insurance companies you know, wouldn't insure African-Americans then. Uh, so it sort of grew out of the tradition of, of the uh, funeral and particularly the funeral with music, which had been part of New Orleans culture uh, from the beginning. And was that, was that the funeral with music? Was again, was that unique to New Orleans uh, initially no. at least? I don't know that it was unique to New Orleans, but it was, it was an old world tradition. But it was, uh, again, across all uh, levels of society in New Orleans. It was not just the African-Americans, the, the, the whites did it too. Really? Uh, yes, and it started off with probably uh, the brass bands, military bands, and they played, you know, just hymns and dirges and things like that. And then mm -hmm. as time went on, uh, the whites sort of dropped it but the African-Americans continued to do the funerals with music. And of course the music morphed into jazz. So, so that's one of the things that um, I remember reading sometime way back, you know, I, there's been all times in my life when I stopped for a minute to read, you know, the history of things. And um, one of the uh, historians that's known for um, their research on jazz um, they claim that part of the tradition of improvisation was due to musicians marching without music, without printed music. 
available so that they were really having to play without that printed music and that contributed to the improvisation that we call jazz. Oh, okay. I hadn't heard that particular. I, I wish I could recall the name of the historian who told me that because he's he's very recognized. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it makes, some, name it makes some sense. Huh? Yeah, it makes some sense. Yeah. You yeah. know, it does. Yeah. yeah. So, and in, in, uh, first of all, how did you get started doing this? So I, I know you're a photographer uh, by profession and creative practice. And uh, I'm familiar, of course, I've been running into you forever in, in all the art settings that uh, we have been in together, especially at the New Orleans Museum of Art, where you were working for so many years. Um, but this is uh, what, what, what drew you to this to the point of, of printing. I don't know how many pages this is, but let's see. It's over 300. <laughs> over 300 pages yeah. and big full pages with really beautiful photographs. So it is a photography book, but there's a lot of copy too, a lot of essays that talk about different aspects of um, the, uh, the second line um, uh, tradition. Um, so it, it talks about the history, the parades, under the parades, you've got the finery, the dancing, the roots, the music, and then the clubs, community on parade, club profiles, and an epilogue talking about, you know, the time when we didn't have second lines during uh, COVID. Um, and then you have a traditional jazz funeral for Alfred uh, Bucket Carter, looks like was one of the particular uh, jazz funerals that you focused on. That's a lot, that's a lot of information. So you have to be really serious and passionate about this. Tell me about how that happened. Um, well, I had always enjoyed photographing uh, people and in particular sort of the, the wonderful quirky characters we have in New Orleans and who like to dress up and costume for many, many occasions. So when I first saw the, uh, when I read about the Social Aid and Pleasure Clubs and their parades in the newspaper in 1997, I think it was, it was a big long article that had photos and everything. And I thought, now that looks like something that it would be fun to photograph, you know, cause they have these wonderful colorful costumes. Uh, they get out in the street, they dance through the streets, you know, uh, and people the, join them. That's the whole yeah, idea. A better subject, you know. So I started out with just the idea of just, you know, having fun photographing them. But the longer I did it, and the more people I got to know and got to hear about this long, complex history, uh, the more I thought it would deserve a, a book, you know, a, seri a serious treatment uh, that would show this long, complex, but colorful vibrant, alive tradition. And so how long did you work on that book? I, I, I'm going to guess it had to be more than a half a dozen years or maybe close to a decade. It was very, it was a decade. You know, I started photographing them in the late 90s and I didn't really start writing the book and I started slightly before Katrina, but Katrina was a real impetus, you know, when we 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 did we weren't sure whether or not the tradition would survive. Yep. We weren't sure New Orleans would survive. You know, right. but we absolutely were worried that that particular tradition wouldn't survive. And when it did, it was you know everybody was so thrilled 
and uh, it seemed like it would be a good time to to really start uh, uh, telling the story of that tradition and preserving, you know, the history of the tradition. And and Judy, you know, as we all do in New Orleans, the sensitivity of um, black people of all traditions and customs who are parading and playing and costuming to having people photograph them. And there a concern on their part that uh, too many photographers are making money off them and uh, they are not participating in that. Uh, did you run into that? A little bit early on. Um, but as they got to know me, you know, and the one thing I did to sort of try to uh, gain their trust was that I would give them photographs, uh, you know, from, from last year's parade, I would take the photographs to the next year's parade and, and pass them out. And they got to know me and realized that I was not trying to rip them off. Uh, but also there's a, you know, everybody's a photographer now with their cell phones. I know, yeah. Yeah, so the idea of being worried about somebody taking your picture is, is, is you, don't, you don't encounter it a whole lot anymore. You uh, still do encounter, however, and this is a theme, you know, I, I, of course, my organization is addressing the whole question of the creative economy, and there still is a concern about the creatives benefiting from their um, customs and their um, their production of whatever their creative practice is. Uh, and, and so that, that's still a major issue in New Orleans that we're dealing with in terms of making sure that everybody gets to share the benefits. So um, you hear that coming from the Mayor's Office of Cultural Economy, you hear that coming from the, even the tourism industry, which initially I think thought they were just good guys bringing visitors here and the visitors would benefit everybody in a very general, universal, generic way, but individuals were still having to have that day job. You know, I'll never forget discovering that Lee Dorsey, one of our really famous vocalists, was a car mechanic. He either painted cars or he worked on cars, but that was his day job, which he had to pursue in order to. And when I know as a creative, since my husband's an artist and he's a planner during the day to, to pay the bills, that if you are um, a creative and you are having to do other work to support yourself, it really takes away from what you can do with um, your, your creative career. It, it, it stunts it in some ways. So it's still an issue. I, uh, I, I, yes, I suppose it is somewhat of an issue, you know. Um, we did want to, the historic New Orleans collection uh, has been very, very generous, <laughs> as it were. Um, I insisted that uh, they give a, a copy of the book to each club. And they just, they raised my ante. They said, well, we'll just give them three. So we have been doing that, yes. But they also had a, an exhibition and as part of the exhibition, they um, borrowed uh, some of the suits, you know, from the clubs and what have you, and they paid them well. Okay. And, uh, yeah. you know, so, the, so I think the club members uh, were gratified by that. 
you know, they were, they appreciated that, that, that not only were they being recognized, you know, uh, for, their, for their tradition, their artistry and their creativity, but they were being paid for it also. So you can, however, still argue, and I will, I'm not going to linger on this much longer because it's, it's a well-known story that um, there's, there still is insufficient remuneration for many creatives in our city. This is a, it's not just uh, people who are saying the second line clubs, it, it's, it's uh, more general to all of us. We certainly don't make the money that uh, can be made in some of the larger um, creative centers. Right, right. Yes, I've had to. I've had to work for for a living my whole career. You know, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't survive by selling my photographs as yeah. art by any means. Yeah, yeah. Um, let me ask you about uh, some of the clubs and some of the parades. So, having covered so many and having become familiar with them, and as you said, getting to know them, um, and I don't want you to. This is a, always a difficult question because I want to know what people's favorites are, and of course you don't want to say one was a favorite, uh, a favorite over another. But what, which are some of the ones that struck you as being particularly um, uh, unique or creative in their uh, selection of, of the styles of their costumes, of their uh, dancing, of their music, of all of the things that go into? A second line parade and a and a and the presentations in general, not just the, the parades themselves. Um, well, it's sort of hard to say, you know, in a sense, because each club is different. Um, each uh, there are some clubs that have certain. Uh, some clubs uh, like to put more emphasis on their outfits, you know. So they uh, and then, but other clubs uh, think their dancing is more important. Uh, so it's really hard to, you know, compare them. Uh, also, actually, in terms of their uh, outfits and their, uh, they call it the decorations that you talked about that they carry with them. Um, there are several people who uh, make the decorations professionally, uh, and they will make the decorations for more than one club. Um, decorations can range from... Uh, feathered fans to umbrellas to um, you know uh, uh, costumes that have I'm looking at run by the original big seven and he has this what looks like a humongous handbag made with red and and, and white feathers that's hanging from him that has the logo of uh, that his organization so again it's wide ranging it uh, is, it is, but there are several of the, there, there, there are th sort of three in particular men who do this. Uh, Kevin Dunn is, was, is one that, he, and he sort of specializes in the streamers. That's, that's what you would, it, it goes across the body, but then there's a large logo that hangs down on the side that's, and they're, you know, uh, they've got ribbons and sequins and bows and designs and, you know, all sorts of things. Um, then there's uh, another fellow, um, uh, Adrian uh, T.D. Gaddis, and he does the decorations for uh, several of the downtown clubs. Uh, and then there's uh, the, the, man, the man on the cover of the book is um, Trouble, um, 
is his name. Uh, he parades with the old and new style fellas, and he de he designs everything about their outfit, everything, socks, shoes, ties, you know, the fans, the decorations, the, the whole nine yards. And, and all of these uh, are quite talented uh, designers uh, in, their, in their own rights. And I would, I would imagine um, that as they make these things for the members that they are being recompensed well by the- oh, yes, the oh, yes because yes. that work is, that's, that's not so, you know, I remember reading, um, I think it was one of the books about the early Mardi Gras costume designs. And uh, again, I'm gonna, I just have this horrendous name memory, but the gentleman who wrote these books um, and, and illustrated showed the pictures of the designs of those early Mardi Gras costumes. They were something else. I mean, they're still pretty grand, but those were elaborate. They were as elaborate as any float. And I, again, I imagine the people who did those, those designs uh, were, were doing pretty well too from the members of those uh, crews and clubs. To how would you describe the roots of the designs? Actually, <laughs> that's an easy question because the very early parades, and there, there are some wonderful photos of some of the parades from the 60s and 70s, um, their outfits and, and uh, decorations were relatively simple. They would wear, uh, uh, generally the men wore, wore just trousers, you know, brown, black, something or other, a shirt, but they had decorated, you know, colorful suspenders and they try to get some matching shoes, but for their decorations, they would carry small fans, umbrellas, and canes, walking sticks that they maybe wound with, with a colored ribbon. And that was it. The today's decorations all came from that. The fan getting more and more elaborate and competitive. Oh yeah, the fans now have ostrich feathers and they're enormous. Uh, the uh, the umbrellas can also be very highly decorated. Uh, the walking stick, that thing you talked about that you said looked oriental, that is a variation on a walking stick. Believe huh. it, or not. that's and they call it a stick. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 the other, more like some kind of Chinese lantern. Uh, yes, but that's just that particular designer designed it that way. Yeah. Uh, one other element they, that you see is a basket, and that started from little, you know, Easter baskets that they would carry, and that they would have cigars and doll and dolls to give to the, you know, to the to the spectators. So it all started rather rather simply, and then it just got more and more elaborate as time went on, and the designers got more and more creative. So you know, I um, I was raised Catholic. <clears throat> I'm not a very religious person, but I loved Easter and and the you know the Easter spread, um, which again starts out uh, fairly simply. And I actually went back to 
visit my roots in Czechoslovakia, where my mother's family is from. Oh. And, I, and I chose to go there during Easter because I wanted to see the origins again of our customs. And um, in the village green on the Saturday before Easter, there was a gathering of people with their baskets to be blessed by the village priest. And in those baskets was eggs and breads and maybe some uh, something to drink. They also, most of the people in the village were making their own vodka, which was plentiful. And, <laughs> Um, but that it was just it was a the baskets were they were not filled with um, Godiva chocolate bunnies you know <laughs> it's much more simple fare again those roots uh, are start out simpler and then they they do uh, tend to get more elaborate and um, how how would you speak to the health of the social you said you know it was challenged by Katrina. And we, we certainly have learned in New Orleans that these challenges for us, um, and I think for other people too, I mean, this is happening all over the country, that the challenges of COVID pandemic have opened up all kinds of new paths for some folks and closed paths for others. And it's it's been a, um, the uncertainty of which way it's gonna go for you has really been challenging for people. But um, how would you, talk about the life of this tradition today and how you feel it may evolve or is evolving as we go through kind of one trauma after another. And my, my husband pointed out to me on the radar map, we get something called my radar that shows you, you know, you can go all over the world and see the, what's happening. And, uh, and he showed me three systems marching across the Atlantic from Africa right now that no, may or no. may not develop into big storms, right? And so we're just, we're just confronted with more and more of these challenges. How do you feel we are gonna continue to meet these challenges? And then there was this horrible article that I really wish I hadn't heard. Somebody called me this morning and said, you have to see this article that Tucker Carlson um, oh, Lord. <laughs> wrote, I mean, I, I don't I don't ever listen to Fox. I just can't handle it. Um, as just as I guess those folks don't listen to MSNBC, which is what I listen to mostly. Um, but there was uh, he, he was saying, oh, New Orleans is over. It's, you know, dead no carjackings and blah, blah, blah. But in my experience, uh, in the preparation for my radio show that runs on VOK, I interview a lot of young Black creative entrepreneurs that are just mind-blowing in their commitment to expressing their culture and becoming business people. And so I say, well, there may be some really bad stuff going on and carjackings is not a pretty thing. It's, it's very threatening to everybody. But um, at the same time, you have a lot of um, commitment to the future in this city. So how do you feel about the role that the social aid and pleasure clubs will continue to play in this city as we meet one challenge after another? Well, they're continuing. Um, I think they, we, they had several last year. Um, and I think so far as I know this year, the, the first parade of the season they, they run from late August to the end of June. So the first parade for this coming season is next Sunday. 
and I've already talked to uh, some of the people involved in it and got the route sheet. So I'm going to go to where they're going to start and take pictures of them and, and uh, what have you. But the, the thing about this tradition is that it's uh, such a long tradition uh, and has developed, it has developed definitely, it's different from, from the earlier parades, but it had developed very slowly. And I don't see them changing much about how they do the parades. The clubs are gonna still dress up and they're gonna still uh, have their band and they're going to parade for four hours. Uh, they're going to uh, come out the door dancing and uh, just parade through the streets for four hours and have a wonderful time. How about the younger people? Do you feel like the next generations, the, the teenagers and the, and the young, younger kids even are, are going to follow in, in their, uh, their ancestors, so to speak, uh, living and not living uh, 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 footsteps? Well, that's the hope. And actually, most of the clubs have kids that parade with them. Uh, they're often, you know, sons and daughters or grandsons and granddaughters of the members of the clubs. Uh, but they see that, you know, the club members see that as the as as the, they're bringing the next generation along with them. And um, I think I think it, they will. I, I think it'll work. I, I think it will. They'll continue. What other uh, traditions? I mean, I, I often, when I speak of culture bearers in the city, uh, I'm usually in my mind including social aid and pleasure clubs, marching bands, per se, um, and um, of course, uh, Mardi Gras Indians or Mexican Indians. Um, so, you know, social aid and pleasure clubs are a part of this again, this cultural heritage that we have here that's so powerful. Um, how about them? How about the marching bands and the masking Indians? Do you see them also continuing to express the unique culture that they came up with too? I do, I do, yes. Um, it's, it's interesting because the Indians and the social aid and pleasure clubs, it's a diff totally separate, you know, cultural expression, but a lot of the people who are Indians have also belonged to, still do belong to, participate in the social aid and pleasure club uh, culture and vice versa. Uh, and uh, I see them continuing to do, you know, what they have always done. They, they, they think of it as our culture. This is our culture and they feel as though they are part of this long historical traditional culture. So that reminds me of a time when I was having lunch at Mother's with uh, Judge Rubin. Do you remember Judge Rubin by any chance? I, oh I, yeah, yeah. I can remember his first name and two of his law clerks. Um, and the law clerks, at least one of them, was not from here. So she was bemoaning the lack of culture in New Orleans. Uh. <laughs> and of course, what she was talking about was that, oh, in her mind, there weren't enough 
there wasn't enough opera and symphony and ballet and, and, and that kind of on the stage culture. And I was just horrified at her saying that. I mean, I hadn't been here that many years. I've been here now 50 years, but at the time, I don't think I was here more than a half a dozen years, but I, I, I was here long enough to know about the, the homegrown, the natural, the neighborhood, the every house culture in the city, which to me is superior to, I, I think it's unfair to say anything is superior to, I mean, culture is culture in all its different forms. But to say that we didn't have culture was so appallingly off base and unappreciative of this unique culture that we have. Well, of course, she obviously was not aware of the fact that the New Orleans Opera is the oldest opera country company in the country. I think I corrected her Thank with that. Very much, yes. I had to uh, inform her of that as well, of course. Yeah, yes. yeah. But, but yes, no, I think so, New Orleans has a much richer grassroots culture than most other cities. I grew up in Birmingham and believe me, there's nothing like this going on in Birmingham. <laughs> you know, the grassroots there go to football games and that's about it. You know, they have they have tailgate, yeah, they have tailgate parties and they think that's their culture. You know, so well let's give them their their tailgate parties, but yeah, no, it's nothing like what we have here. Um, what would you say of, of all the things that you learned about people and customs in our city in, in that decade that you worked on this book that really sort of has a hold on your way of thinking and uh, seeing the world? What, what, what stayed with you? What was your kind of, as they say, takeaway from it that, that stays with you all the time? Um. Uh, in a way, a couple of things that, that are uh, different but complementary. One is the sense of community that they have. This community of the second line uh, clubs is just really, really strong. Uh, and it's quite large, but with 50 clubs and, and, you know, there is one club that has only one member, but many, some of the clubs have 100 members. So this is, we're talking about a lot of people. It's spread all across New Orleans, but they really do feel this, this uh, sense of, of community. But it's also the, uh, the, the sense of joy that you, that you feel when you see, when you see the, the, the way they dance uh, with, you know, it's just, it's just wonderful. It's just wonderful expression of a community celebration. And it's really great. And the fact, the, the, one of the really unique things you alluded to it a little bit ago is that this is not a parade like a Mardi Gras parade where you stand on the side and a float goes by and somebody throws you a bead. This, the uh, second line parade, when they go through the streets, the, everybody goes with them. You don't, you know. That's the whole idea of the second one. Some of us older folks don't necessarily dance in the streets anymore. We might stand on the side and watch them. But, they, but there's a large group of people who are not part of the club, but who, who follow the parade for four hours, go along with it. And Have you covered many of the general parades? Pardon me? Have you covered many of the uh, funeral parades. Oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. 
Yeah. So you have that that you know the upbeat. Well, you have the dirge dirge like part uh, before um, a person is buried, and then there's that celebration that that person has joined heaven and God and their family and their ancestors. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. That that distinction has always. I covered. Uh, I think my first. I don't remember again. It was probably about 1973 that I covered my first jazz funeral, and it of course blew blew me away. That's for sure. I'm coming yeah, from Yankee again. Yeah, I'll never forget my first one either. It was like, my goodness, <laughs> what is this? And I remember uh, about a week or so later, a friend, uh, I was in graduate school then, a friend said, you know, that he had been to her funeral. And I said, oh, good, how was it? <laughs> it was a family member who had died and did not have that kind of funeral. I was yeah. a little embarrassed. <laughs> Yeah, and you know, it's a shame that, I mean, of course, I don't feel as a white person, and especially as somebody not native to New Orleans, I mean, if, again, I've been here 50 years, I hope that counts for something, but I'm still not native, so I don't feel the privilege of being able to have a, um, you know, I do know some some white people do have second line bands and, and um uh, and and uh, uh, the ceremonial, the celebration and the ceremonial part that is part of the black culture here for their funerals. I wouldn't uh, feel comfortable uh, doing that at all. Um, so it, it is something that I, I, I admire and I enjoy, um, but uh, I don't participate in. However, I do feel that white culture in New Orleans is enormously impacted, of course, by our black culture. And that's another thing that we maybe don't give enough uh, attention to is the, is the incredible value of that culture for all of us. And um, I, I remember once a young man, when I used to be a, a fairly heavy club, clubber, party girl, when in, you know, in the seventies, when I was learning all about this and I was part of the founding of the, uh, the Contemporary Arts Center and I wanted to really be able to present uh, this culture. So I wanted to understand what was going on. So I was out a lot. And one evening I was sitting with a guy named Peter Yoakum, I think it was. And he said, Gene, you, you do understand that if you are from New Orleans, that you are black, no matter what color you are. <laughs> says, because if you go someplace else and, and you encounter white people from elsewhere, you are not like them and they are not like you because you have been so influenced by the African black culture of New Orleans. And I, I've never forgotten that. And I, I, and I really believe it's absolutely true. I think I, I agree. I think that's wonderful. I, I, I hadn't thought of it quite that way, but I'm glad to now. Well, I, I loved having him say that, you know, uh, it was just yeah. very, yes. um, Jerry, it's such a treat to have been able to talk with you about this. And um, your book is amazing. I mean, I'm just going to, because we are video, the video doesn't necessarily show up on the, on the radio show. Um, that when this airs on Fridays at noon on WBOK, but um, you know we do uh, we are on SoundCloud and we are uh, over time. We all of my interviews since COVID have been on Zoom, so I foresee that we will collect these videos at some point 
and make them more accessible to people. So I wanted to add the visual of your book on there. Thank you so much for doing that book oh, and for all your photography over the years. And I'm sure you have a few pictures of me buried in there from when I was, you know, a sweet young thing. You'll have to, <laughs> you'll have to, now that I'm a gray haired lady, you'll have to pass on uh, uh, some of those images that it will remind me. Oh yeah, I remember her. <laughs> well, thanks Thank so you. much. Thanks for your so much. Judy Cooper, photographer, essayist, and uh, now uh, somebody who is uh, so cognizant of the um, social aid and pleasure clubs uh, in New Orleans. I'm, I'm surprised you haven't formed your own yet. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thank <laughs> you so much. You take care. Talk with you. Bye-bye. <laughs>